<laughs> you can change like the eyebrow stuff as well as mustache and beards. Like this, I now have like a very slight goatee. <laughs> oh, it's it's so strange. Why would you do that? Because you want to look conventionally beautiful. Ah, oh, it's so vain. It literally says like touch up my appearance, and I'm just like imagining like if professors use it. If if they use it, and it's a very frightening thought. It's like, like it, I've seen people say it should be banned. Oh, that that feature should be banned. Those features that do like automatic touch up on photos and and videos. Yeah, because it continues this. Uh, it perpetuates certain like uh, standards of beauty that are like unnecessarily achievable for lots of people. Like changing the actual like bone structure of one's face and like the placement of like cheekbones. Oh, you're talking about like banning it and like advertising and shit. Banning it and advertising, and also banning it as a default option in video calls and and picture taking apps. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I feel that would have been a great segue for that topic, but we're not talking about that today. We're talking. <laughs> we're talking about something. Is else. Hector gonna do the intro spiel? <laughs> no, I can't. I, I can't. I am the last person qualified. The, the last person qualified? I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure that like a one-year-old in Japan who's like playing in a mud puddle would be much less qualified than you are. No, I think they've read bullshit jobs. <laughs> <laughs> this is episode 32 of the Exit Tangent Quarantine Dispatch. It's me, your host, Nozel, and I'm here with three of the top leading industry experts on expert valuation and liquidation uh, assessment. Now, please tell me what you spend your entire day doing, Mr. M. So most of my days I spend uh, analyzing uh, open market uh, liquidity uh, entanglement opportunities for uh, open face uh, subprime uh, quarter pound beef and cheese. (laughs) Oh, thank you, thank you. That's very, very, very prestigious. Very prestigious indeed. Uh, oh, interesting, Mister um, Mister Hadrian. Um, please tell me about what you spend your 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 deep long days doing. Oh, I just put like dollar bills in a, in an immersion blender, and I'm like, that's liquid. Sorry, <laughs> I already messed it up. All right, and Mr. H, please tell us how you spend your entire day at, at your work, the, the Factory of Dreams. At, or the Factory of Dreams. So we at the Factory of Dreams pump in, uh, you know, a lots of varieties of dreams for all our uh, prime customers. Uh, so f- for anyone that has our subscription service, they're able to uh, use any of our high-quality dreams, such as lucid dreaming. Those are for our top-tier category. Uh, We also have uh, dreams where uh, you are fully clothed and laughing at someone else uh, who doesn't pay for a subscription service who is not fully clothed in their dream. Um, Additionally, uh, for those who uh, are on our trial uh, program, uh, they actually do get one nightmare uh, free of charge, and the only reason for that is in order to kind of goad them into buying our subscription servers, kind of saying, like, if you don't buy our subscription, uh, this is what's going to happen to you every single day of your life. Uh, so that is why uh, the majority of the entire Earth population is happily a proud customer of the Factory of Dreams. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for getting through that without laughing in the middle of it. That was very professional. Yes. 
That's what he's paid to do. All right. Uh, now on to our paid. our central topic for this episode of the discourse. Yeah, so the topic this uh, episode is Bullshit Jobs, um, which is a book that is by David Graeber, who recently passed away in September. Uh, not of the coronavirus, which is good. Um, but yeah, so the, the other thing that I wanted to do as well is also talk about universal basic income in this episode after we get through the discussion of Bullshit Jobs. Um, and then we'll see how long that takes or if we'll have time for it. All right. And the first question I would pose to you is why did you choose this book? What about it spoke to you? And then why did you want to share it with us? Yeah, I read a, an interview with the author in Vox in like 2018 when it came out. I'm not normally one to read Vox. It was like linked on a discord somewhere or something. Um, and it seemed pretty compelling, um, because it's one of those things where it's like, uh, when, when I was like growing up or whatever, I was always kind of like, 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 I think I grew ever more suspicious of like the things that you're kind of expected to do in the working world. Like the, like, you know, thinking about things like, you know, people fought for like 40 hour work weeks in like the early 20th century. And now people are sort of like, you know, people are bragging like in, in, in certain circles about working 60 hours or 80 hours a week. And that just seemed backwards to me. You know, the fact that like we were promised that like, Oh, you know, automation is going to make everything more efficient and people are still working full time. Some people are working even more than that. Um, the, the interview was kind of compelling because it, it sort of provided a, a theory that sort of like uh, that sort of went along with some of my suspicions about how employment works Basically, throughout this episode, I'm not going to say any personal experiences about having jobs um, or whether I consider them to be bullshit or not for what should be obvious reasons. But like sort of like larger um, societal implications about about this kind of stuff, like I have sort of observed and can and, and kind of like uh, find them interesting. I meant to uh, prescribe this book or whatever Uh or suggest this book for us to read earlier, like several months ago when the author passed away, but then I just never got around to it, uh, reading it or when, or like other stuff came up earlier. Cause we talked about like intellectual property, like gig economy services, um, the big short, I think those were the ones that I did before this one. Uh, and those, those were just more interesting to me at the time, but I figured like, you know, at some point the podcast will come to an end. And so I should get this out of the way before, you know, before we stop doing the podcast. Um, and also I'd just been reading it of my own accord, just sort of like in between, cause I'd finished 10% happier early. So I was like, Oh, you know what? Uh, how about I read uh, bullshit jobs in the meantime and all this kind of stuff. So I figured that was the, it was the right time to start talking about that. And mm-hmm. it ended up being a very interesting book. So, yeah. All right. And I, I didn't get to finish it, as you mentioned earlier. Um, it's been busy with other things. But I feel that even after the first three chapters, I have a really good idea of the, both the typology and why this is a bad thing. Um, so for some, I guess, do you want to do this section by section? or? Um, I guess. Um, like I can, I can go over the table of contents. Like I can pull them up on my phone and then we can sort of go through these things. Um, Basically, um, I'll I'll give an overview of the book. Well, first of all, I guess what you need to know about the author is that David Graeber was an anthropology professor. That approach to research crops up in this book in a way that I 
did not expect, but also found incredibly interesting. Um, like there aren't a whole lot of like, you know, like, you know, a lot of like, you know, hard data behind the claims that he makes. A lot of his, uh, a lot of his theories are substantiated by various, uh, accounts from people that, you know, emailed him or, you know, contacted him through other means, uh, and told their story to him. And so he got like tons and tons of those and collected them. And like every claim in the, in the book is sort of backed up by like a few, uh, examples of things that happened with actual people. Uh, and then, you know, the, the, you can debate about like whether that's useful or not. The, the really, the one figure that is kind of like bandied about throughout the book is this YouGov survey of British workers where it said something like 37% of the respondents thought that their job had no value, um, which is a pretty high number and higher than the author was expecting. Um, and so like he, and he wrote, he wrote this, uh, he, he wrote this original essay called on the phenomenon of bullshit jobs in like 2013 or something as just sort of like the supposition that he had. And then when he got like a, a lot of positive response to it, and then the YouGov survey came out, I guess he decided to put it into a larger book. Um, the, the book has seven chapters. The first chapter is just what is a bullshit job. Uh, and then it has subsections like why a mafia hitman is not a good example of a bullshit job. Why hairdressers are not a good example of a bullshit job, uh, on the common misconception that bullshit jobs are confined largely to the public sector and all this kind of stuff. Uh, chapter two talks about the varieties of bullshit jobs, uh, which we can talk about later. Um, chapters three and four are sort of like a section called on spiritual violence. Chapter three is called why do those in bullshit jobs regularly report themselves unhappy? And so there, this is mostly revolving around a couple of stories of, of people who sort of, uh, came into the professional class and then ended up washing out because, because just the, the, just being in this bullshit job, just like sort of, I don't know, caused a lot of strain on them psychologically. Chapter four is called what is it like to have a bullshit job? Um, chapter five is, uh, called why are bullshit jobs proliferating? And that I believe mostly, uh, alludes to the, the financial industry, uh, sort of like being a debt machine and creating a state of what the author calls managerial feudalism, um, which is like the feudalism of the olden times, except with more surveillance. So, you know, it's, it's better in that respect. Um, (laughs) better at keeping people in line. (laughs) Yeah. Um, chapter six is called why do we as a society not object to the growth of pointless employment? And that mostly talks about, um, so, sort of examines the value of work or like how people perceive work as a sort of valuable character building thing. And then also the social value of the work itself and how that tends to be inversely proportional to what the job actually pays. Mm. Um, and then chapter seven is what are the political effects of bullshit jobs? And is there anything that can be done about the situation? Um, and then that one is like the one that like at the very end, it talks about universal basic income, which is why the second portion of this podcast will be dedicated to it. Um, but, but it also talks about, um, the things that like, you know, there's automation will cause a problem with, with employment, but it will also like, if things continue, will just cause a continuous like proliferation of bullshit jobs. Um, there's apparently this thing it's called, uh, there's a subsection here said on the, on how the political culture under managerial feudalism comes to be maintained by a balance of resentments. I think there he talks about a sort of like sadomasochistic relationship between employer and employee where there's no safe word, basically. Like he talks about how fucked up that is. Um, and also like saying that there might be some sort of revolt among the quote unquote caring classes, the kind of like, uh, I guess like 
service sector, the emotional labor workers, I guess. And so that's what the book covers in the grand, in the grander scheme. And I think that the structure of the book, you know, again, I didn't get to finish some of the chapters, um, is laid out in a way that makes it easy to approach, especially the intro where he just tries to lay down a definition. Um, and it relates to a lot of people's prior experiences because a lot of people have had jobs which have some element of bullshit to them, just by the way how bureaucratic both the public and the private sector has been in various aspects. And it allows the reader to sort of be lured in by some of his more uh, outlandish theories that kind of seem harder to pin down unless you start on that found, like foundational bedrock of like, here's the definition, here are a ton of examples in these surveys with actual numbers. Because like if you just jumped to the end of the book, I think that you might be it might be it might be a lot harder to be convinced of some of his findings. Yeah, but with the first and second chapter kind of laying out this typology and definition, it allows you to like open your mind to this notion of like how deep this problem goes. That's how I kind of felt so far. Yeah, that that was the same thing too. Because like when I when I went into this book, like I was kind of like skeptical of the notion of UBI, which like I said, like, like, the, like, I, I guess I should preface that by saying like, uh, the author makes it clear at the end of this book that the book is not supposed to be, is not meant to be talked about in the, in the context of the policy. But, um, so, so I, I, like, I will not do that. And instead I will just say that like the, 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 the arguments that are made throughout each of the chapters sort of build on one another. So like not stepping away from the UBI example, the, the concept of something like managerial feudalism. Like if you just kind of came out right and said that, like it would be like, well, what the hell? Yeah. Um, but then I'll can't the, lead with that. Yeah. All the stuff that precedes it sort of like uh, lends it a little bit more credence, I think. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with that. Um, so I guess given that for the sake of our listeners or anyone who listens to this and as well as the conversation itself, which will probably skew more leftists as we go on, uh, would you like to start with the definition and the typology? So, uh, so it seems that the definition of it, uh, it's, it's paid work that meets um, a couple conditions. I think it's like two. Uh, so it has to be completely useless and unnecessary work um, that even the employee himself can't justify the existence of the job. And then the other condition is that as part of this work relationship, the employee and his or her colleagues, uh, even though they feel their job is bullshit, uh, they act as if it is important that they do the job. Um, the second part, the acting, is more brought up later on and not necessarily in the first chapter, I feel like. Uh, but yeah, that, that that could be a definition of bullshit jobs. That I could you know, agree with definitely the parts where the worker themselves doesn't believe that it performs any viable task. I'm sure that there are like, and this is talked about in the book, uh, in the scale of, in the, um, with the word taskmaster in it, and we can get into more of that means later, but there are probably jobs out there that the person who has a job thinks it's a real job, but that their supervisor is just creating it and like creating the bullshit and feeding it to the person with the job and telling them it's important when really it doesn't mean anything. Also, I was going to say, like, I think it is a really good, um, like, talking about the book and also just like its context is really good and relation to a lot of the talk about essential workers since um like it it seems like um so so with these bullshit jobs like if they disappeared there wouldn't really be a big problem right that's like the 
crux of, that's the crux of the argument or well I don't know if it is not you know not <laughs> having read the book yeah but I assume that it is like one of the biggest uh, points of the argument is that if these jobs were to disappear you know yeah like you, like you said the world would keep turning nothing would really change um, but you have people like teachers nurses uh, cleaners um, other actual essential workers or people who are called essential workers now. Uh, if their jobs disappeared, uh, then we'd have a real problem. But they're also the ones that are paid the lowest salaries. Um, so um, I think, you know, the, the fact that, like, all of a sudden, like, pre-pandemic, um, you know, none of these people were really called essential workers. They were called their job titles. And now, now all of a sudden, you know, everybody changed the tune. Uh, of course, not completely because... Not a lot of these people are paid, you know, hazard pay, right? They're they're probably paid like I, I heard somewhere that you know some places are they're 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 paying them with hero pay, you know, because because they're because they're heroes. What the hell is he- is uh, that exposure? <laughs> well, hero pay is just like has another name for hazard pay. Oh. Sort of. It's if if they call it hazard pay, right? Then they'd have to acknowledge that like for the past year they're they have been working in a hazard, which means that they should be entitled to you know that year of you know of working in hazard right, compensations but you know but calling it hero pay is you know makes them feel special. calling it hero pay reminds me of like the the sort of like uh pre-topic era of this podcast where you mentioned that the right uh that the extreme right was talking in baby speak oh yeah that was that was like that was when I was living with you or with you all on your floor. That was like happening on Reddit. Yeah. And and it was just R slash friend world. Yeah, exactly. And it's just one of those things. It's like one of those like I don't know, it's like a dystopian euphemism, basically. It's like uh like like it's like it's like, you know, it's like we are legally not allowed to call this hazard pay because then we'd have to give you more money. So we're gonna call it hero yeah. pay because it pays less. <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. What I was gonna say, like the yeah, the reason I bring bring all that stuff up because yeah, it's really important because um like there, there, you know, there are people with these bullshit jobs, uh, or, or I guess like maybe not like um, the you know the receptionist, but I, I guess I'm, I'm more talking about like the 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 people who are I guess making these jobs. The analyst of the chief analyst of thoughts and innovation, right? Uh, th- this chief analyst of thought and innovation is uh, raking in the big dough for the past uh, what ten months or whatever the pandemic, yeah. Like, like, I guess for a quick example, like, 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 you know, Elon Musk and, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos and a couple other people, like their, their fortunes have skyrocketed. The CEO of Goldman Sachs has said that office work is apparent and that by not having his employees in the office, they're, they're not, they're not like, they're not using, what did he say? He said something along the lines of like, he's not paying for them to sit at home. He's paying for them to be in the office. Which is like really weird. Oh, and that is talked about in the book. So, yeah. boom, uh-huh. transition. Um, <laughs> there is uh, there is a section of, uh, of the book which goes into this is the anthropological stuff. Um, this gets it gets into the fact that like this was not always the case. Um, in like even as you know as far back as the era of feudalism, like. Uh, the the way that the the sort of work structure was determined was that you know the feudal lords like wanted something from their peasants. Um, 
But what was important uh, or the important distinction between then and now is that they didn't care how much time it took for them to do the work. So, you know, like peasants could sit around like basically for weeks at a time and then sort of like during the harvest season, then they're really like doing all the backbreaking labor. But like uh, over like, like there was a, a specific sentence that was something along the lines of like historically uh, the bulk of human work has been sort of like periods of, you know, very high stress, like like endurance work. And then periods followed by periods of relaxation, and then ramping up again into the really hard stuff. The example and, given was the harvest and the sow. Yeah, the two periods of a farm worker or a serf's year where the work is backbreaking hard and day day after day long. But then there's months of leisure. Yeah, exactly. And and that's not the paradigm that we've come up with. And I think it was what what group of what class of people was it that like that like made thing that turned things in the direction of like. Caring more about paying for time. Yeah. The merchant and artisanal class would begin to hire like apprentices. My recollection is that that paradigm started to change when industrial labor started to emerge. Oh, and, um, and there's a long series of paragraphs. I think it was chapter four, the very, very end of where I had to stop reading, where he talks about the development of clocks and having timepieces significantly changed how work was valued because then they could meter it they could meter it out in in units of time as opposed to units of work yeah exactly so right so 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 that's the that's the dynamic that came to exist um over time is that like before it was just like okay well there are these tasks that need to be done and either they're done or they're not done and it's like you know you get you get compensation for whether you did the tasks which is what i prefer personally um Whereas, like, now it's like, you know, people are expected to do work while they're on the clock always. And there are many stories about that, including one from the author himself where he talks about when he was working at a restaurant, you know, he, like, him and his friends, like, did the lunch rush very efficiently. And then they just sort of, after the lunch rush was over, they sat around, like, smoking cigarettes or whatever. And then the boss comes in and is like, what are you doing? And he's like, we're done working. It's like, well, you're on my time. Clean the baseboards. And it's like, the baseboards are already clean. And he's like, do it again. It's like, that, that kind of of like just like deliberately abusive um sort of thing uh, dynamic uh between employers and employees the sort of like uh that, that that sort of like tyrannical behavior that's very present um you know i i guess like there are some contexts where where like in more important work um like for example like working at one of the fulfillment death camps um <laughs> the like 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 there is always something to do in those centers mm-hmm. uh and and so your time like like you know the, the amount it of is t- guaranteed you will have 8 hours of work exactly so it's like it's like i guess like also like the kind of like um factory like assembly line work like there were always widgets coming through the line and you always had to combine the widgets um and so in that particular case like that's not really like that isn't bullshit jobs it's it's shit jobs which is a distinction that is made toward the beginning of the yeah. book um but it's not a bullshit job because it's like without those people on the assembly line at the time at least um like the car wouldn't exist and without the without the people slaving away at the fulfillment centers, th- you wouldn't be able to get your package in two days or whatever. And I would say to that effect, like that, what you're saying there is like it's much easier, especially in the modern age where everyone's trying to like make their lives a little like you know do things a little easier way, right? I guess I shouldn't say that. It's it's always been the case. That people are always trying to look you know try to be a little easier if they can, but like. With the job where you're only on your feet for 10 hours a week versus the job where you're on your feet for 40 hours a week, right? Like, does the accounting department and the boss really want to spend all the time and effort to, like, figure out how to pay you more so you're not, like, like 
not considering a different job, even though you are only working 10 hours on your feet 10 hours a week? Does that make sense? Or are you just making nonsense? Uh, I don't know. Like, I, I think that there's like, there is kind of like a, a class component to this, right? Because when you talk about like working 10 hours, like, like on your feet 10 hours a week or whatever, like, I, I like, I, like, I imagine that's kind of like, like, you know, you're doing some sort of like practical knowledge work, maybe. Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of stuff, like, while it is less physically intensive, like, does end up paying more, uh, regard just because of the way that things are or whatever. Um, and like, I think that the dynamics are different. Um, because you know, that kind of stuff would be considered like quote unquote skilled labor. Yeah. There's um, not a per- another person on the street you can pick up and ask to do that. Yeah. And, and so, and so in that realm, there is, there is kind of this competition of uh, like, like in some sense, at least ideally, um, at, the, at least that's what we're told is yeah. that like you have, uh, work or it's like you want to hire somebody like you want to be able to like hire them at a competitive rate whereas with like that kind of like un quote unquote unskilled work uh the kind of work that people do like boxing stuff or whatever um that kind of stuff like anyone can do that um and the and a company like amazon like has an incentive to pay those people as little as possible and to like do whatever they can to make sure that they don't like you know try to try to campaign for better situations yeah uh, yeah, I think that arrangement also fits nicely into this understanding of why, like the most like socially valuable jobs are the ones that are the least paid. Is that a lot of the jobs that are essential to society are not like quote unquote skill like are, are quote unquote like unskilled jobs, in the sense that like they are considered by especially a lot of educated people uh, to be jobs that don't require any like specialized training. Which, like, for one, isn't entirely the case. And I think also is, like, part of this kind of class conflict that, like, prevents people from kind of, like, seeing a future where there's less of of bullshit jobs. And that, like, by creating this distinction of, like, skilled and unskilled, it helps to justify paying people less, even if they're doing valuable work. And it can also make you feel better about yourself, even if you're in a bullshit job. It's like, oh, I'm a knowledge worker. Yeah, I went to a four-year college University. that took a you know shit ton of money to pay for. Yeah, yeah. But but one of the things that I did find intriguing um, about about even that about this kind of like oh at least I'm not uh, an epsilon like Brave New World reference or whatever <laughs> um, is like the fact that like it does. Like some people like can't handle that shit, uh, and that's like that. I think that's in chapter three, right? Um, like, there's a person who is called Eric. All of the names are changed for obvious reasons in the book. Yeah. Um, this and Eric is a person who sort of grew up in a in a sort of working class background, um, and then went off to college with the hopes of having you know a better you know a better job that does more for the world. First in his family to go to college. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You, you, like the story is it's a tale as old as time, yeah. or as old as universities, anyway. Um, and. Like what ends up happening is he he majors in history and then I think he ends up doing IT to like do maintenance for a CMS soft, uh, software thing that people don't like people in the company don't actually want so they like there there was there's this conflict between departments within the company and one of the one of the departments suggested this CMS software to sort of better communicate between departments and the other departments were like. Oh, sure, I get like these passive. They went aggressive- along with it, even though they didn't want to use it. Yeah. And so it was just this bloated piece of non-functioning software that people were forced to use throughout the company that Eric was supposed to maintain, even though Eric had no experience in IT or computer science. Yeah, um, and and it actually became like like abundantly clear 
that like his job was completely useless. He did nothing. Yeah, he literally did nothing. Like he would go on quote unquote business trips where he would like get high with his friends and like another part of the country and all this kind of crazy stuff. And it's like, you know, like it, it's one of those things that like I'm sure that like some people are reading that and they're like, this that, that sounds that like sounds the life. Like, yeah. But he ended up like sort of like 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 he, he yeah, he, he fell into a depression. He like actively tried to get fired from that job. They couldn't they wouldn't fire him for this like dumb Instead, bullshit. They gave him more money. Yeah. That that sounds like when I worked at Tech Callers. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it was one of those things where it was like um he was trying desperately to get fired because he was just like, Yeah, this is just, just like nonsense and they just like 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 they're keeping him around like entirely for political reasons. There was absolutely no reason to have him on the job other than to like basically like passive aggressively try to pretend like there was some sort of camaraderie between the departments within a company. Uh, and that was like, and that, that is kind of a depressing story. And then he ended up becoming like a squatter or whatever in England, which, you know, I don't know if it's even possible to live that kind of a life anymore. Um, but like, yeah, th- th- that was a thing that was like, sort of like, you know, it was sad to read that kind of thing. Um, because like, uh, like, like one of the things that struck me in particular, uh, w- was him saying that like, you know, people like in like, like the, the way that it was characterized in the book, and maybe this isn't universally true. Um, but, but, but basically saying like, you know, people in the working class, like, like, you know, people like cobblers or like people that make things like they value their value and are proud of their work. And Eric went to college with the intention of being proud of his work, but also having it have a larger influence on the rest of the world. And instead of that, he got some dumb fucking IT job for 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 completely dumb political reasons. <laughs> it is brought up like, why don't these people um, simply like, like you can quit, you can just stop working, like, like go and get a new job. Like maybe they'll keep sending you paychecks, but like <laughs> sh- I, no one should say no to that. But like there is this like weird sense of like if you have this employment it does all sorts of like weird things to like feeling locked, locked down, you know I'm saying like the spiritual violence of like having this boss, like leaning over you, even though if you don't do anything. I, I, I don't, well, I, I think that like the, the issue that actually comes up is that there is this kind of expectation, something, something that obviously we call the American dream. This person was British though. So it didn't, it obviously <laughs> the British dream, as they say, there's no Brit like class mobility. <laughs> like they, they don't pretend it, like the, 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 the difference between here and the UK is that they don't pretend that there's class mobility in the UK and we do. Oh, okay. Um, so like, yeah, in, in that regard, like there is this kind of expectation where it's like, you know, you go off to college and you get an, a high paying job and then like everybody looks at you like, oh, look at you. You're a successful like like cool, Box co- Yeah, you went to college and now you have this job like, I don't know, moving papers around and you make five hajillion dollars a year. Yeah. And like, you know, I, that's something that I sort of like resonate with I'm, for obvious reasons. Like I came from a fairly like working class background. I mean, my dad had a college degree, but he didn't use it because he didn't want to. Um, and, and like, it, and that was also a thing that I think sort of like, uh, sort of res- is like resonates with me as an adult now is the fact that like, you know, my dad majored in chemical engineering and now he like, he drives concrete trucks and like, they're like seeing that. Oh, well, my dad also. Yeah. See, seeing that and, and, and seeing that there's like, there's like, like the fact that my dad sort of like, you know, turned away from a life of like being an engineer to do something that paid less that he was like, that he enjoyed doing. That was like something that he really, that, that, that has value sort of in the construction industry and all this kind of stuff. Like that's that, I think that kind of like resonates with me personally as well. Like the fact that I like, the fact that I like got to go to MIT and like study whatever I felt like doing or whatever. And, but then also 
like because of what my dad did, like feeling that I don't like not feeling like I had the pressure to like go and like, you know, major in this thing that is like super lucrative and then go be like some paper pusher at some company or whatever and do something that like I didn't think like mattered. Yeah. I think we've all met people at MIT and had our own internal conversations. I can't speak for anyone else here, I guess, but like we've all met the same people at MIT who are sort of prestige chasers and you sort of have to ask yourself like, and ask them maybe if they're willing to expose, talk about it. Like, what do you really want? Is this what you really want? Like, do you feel pressures from your family? Like what makes you happy? Yeah. And it's sometimes hard to get genuine answers out of people. Yeah. And even then, like there is like, as we kind of, I think alluded to in the previous episode, like there is immense pressure to like, like, like for some people to like, to, to do something, to, to, to like have a good, like an engineering job so that they can send money back to their family. And, and from my background where my parents were just kind of like, do whatever you want. It was like, it's just such a stark difference. And I like, I, I do not envy those people who are under that intense pressure. Yeah. So, but then that, that, that tendency also to, to segue back into the topic is, yeah. is, is, uh, like that tendency then leads to people like sort of like ending up in this sort of like professional class of people and then being given these kind of bullshit jobs and then not really like, and then feeling sort of conflicted about it. Or like if you're particularly resourceful, like some other person who's, whose fake name I can't remember. Um, <laughs> like he ended, he ended up doing like, I think he worked for like the pharmaceutical industry doing some awful shit or whatever. And then in his free time, he does like actual helpful work that doesn't pay like that. Like, can't, the, the, like they don't have enough money to like pay any of the people on staff. So they're all volunteering and that's another thing where it's like, like, like it's like, wouldn't it be great if like he could just do that and not have to work for the fucking pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, yeah. Um, which I guess like I will segue again because I'm not, now that I'm on a, going on this line. Like, there was also like, uh, <laughs> like there was also a point in the book uh, where David Graeber talks about uh, an interview that was done with President Obama, uh, where where they were talking about like, you know, why don't we do like uh, something like. What what we would now consider like Medicare for all, like something more public than Obamacare, yeah. or the ACA, um, and he was like, oh, and then get rid of like millions of jobs, and it's like that that's a common sort of like political yeah. thing, and 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 it's and it's like it, it is kind of important, like like it, it, like as a as a like you know for the campaign machine or whatever, um, to not say certain things in order to appease certain voters, like be, like for example, like you know Pennsylvania being a big swing state or whatever, like people like can't come out like in like against fracking, um, because like there's a there's a coalition of voters who do that work and whose livelihoods depend on that work, uh, even though it's damaging to the entire species to do that kind of work, um. Like basically what happens is that like there are these jobs that are like unnecessary or like that are actively harmful and like like not even in the realm of bullshit jobs, but let's just say there are jobs that are actively harmful Mm -hmm. where people work those jobs because they have no other options or they feel that they have no other options. And then like for if you, for example, like, you know, are Hillary Clinton and you go to Pennsylvania and you're like, we're going to get rid of all the coal jobs. It's like you can't just say that. Like you can't say that and then also not offer like an alternative. You can't just say we're gonna put you out of work. You can't also can't offer an alternative uh, uh, that which people don't agree with. Yeah, you can't just be like we're gonna teach all the coal miners how to code. Nope, that won't that, that political <laughs> death right there. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, they can they can code and write an algorithm that simulates um, uh, what's that bird? 
uh, the the bird that like alerts you when there's like too much CO two in the air. Canary, oh, canary. canary. caves. A canary. There you go. Yeah. I have a robot canary built by Boston Dynamics that goes <laughs> into the cave and starts, you know, alerting, you know, the the coal miners. Also shoots lasers at them <laughs> when they're not working uh, hard enough. They put a uh, they put a paintball <laughs> gun on one of the Boston Dynamics robots recently. And they did a video of that, oh and it's just God. like, good God! <laughs> oh no! Yeah, future is yeah, looking um, awfully uh, T one thousand. If you know what I mean. The, the the thing you mentioned about like the the, the that retort the. Um, what about the jobs or something like that? It's like incredibly disingenuous, um, and uh, because I, I guess as we've mentioned, right there, there you do understand why he says it, though, right? Well, no, no, I, I understand why he says it, but like the the obvious retort to that one is, you know, why do people have those jobs or why do they work? Um, and you know, there's a couple, you know, reasons. Like one, they have money; they need money to survive and stuff. Well, for that, you can just there's a basic income, right? There's like that policy that you can do, um, um, and then as, and then as far as like, well, you know, jobs give you purpose. Well, th- again, there's the case of bullshit jobs, which are meaningless in every sense of the word. Uh, so there's like a lot of things that people can push back on on this like really terrible, dumb. Uh, but what about the jobs? Yeah, but they're all incredibly radical, and they're not like they're not in the political mainstream at the level that like those kinds well, of messages can proliferate. Tr- right, yeah. I know, but like I, I think this was in the intro to to the book, maybe because uh, I do remember seeing it somewhere, which was that like like if if, if capitalism is supposed to be like you know efficient, like it's supposed like the free market is supposed to offer services and products as cheaply as possible, like. Th- then, then why are there bullshit jobs in the first place? Because doesn't this make it extremely inefficient? Because I think, and Gerber says this at one point in the part, part that I read, economic ideas about how an ideal market should work are far from the reality in the modern economy. Which I would agree with. And that is why <laughs> a bunch of these things about needing these jobs, which are actually bullshit jobs, are not actually necessary, you know? yeah. And I think the other thing that uh, that Graeber mentions that I that, that was like very compelling, like Graeber, like we should have mentioned before now, like uh, was a practicing anarchist, I guess. Um, and he, uh, like, and one interesting thing about his perspective um, is that he doesn't prefer to talk about capitalism as like a sort of boogeyman. Like he doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't ascribe intentions to abstractions, I think is how he put it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like when talking about like whatever, something, some capitalism, like, like he, he'll, he'll have testimonies from people who say stuff like that of like, Oh, capitalism is the enemy and all this kind of stuff or whatever. But like he himself, like doesn't say that, doesn't say that kind of stuff. And also like when I was talking about managerial feudalism, like he proposes that as the alternative of like this is like closer to what is happening in practice. Actually, have like we we all we all sit around talking about you know late stage capitalism or whatever, but in reality, like you know, yeah, if if we were in this like capitalist society, then it's like those jobs wouldn't exist. There would be many more dead people, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, every economic system that's been proposed, they don't propose it saying, "Oh yeah, and this giant proportion of society will suffer and, and be in terrible pain." Right? <laughs> like every economic model that's been proposed and like tested and tried, like. 
the ideal system on paper says that you know we'll have an ideal number of people who are happy and successful and prosperous. Yeah, everyone has upward mobility. There will never be a uh, lower <laughs> class than before. Well, I'm sure <laughs> when they pitched feudalism, they didn't actually say that. But like nowadays, the, the, also there wasn't a pitch, right? There wasn't a fucking <laughs> conference. <room. laughs> all right, kings and queens, sit down, sit down. All right, all right. Can someone hand me the rock? All right, thanks. We don't have laser pointers. So I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm just gonna pull, hold this rock and point at this this chalkboard. All right, so you guys are gonna be at the top of the pyramid. All right, then there's gonna be priests, and then there's gonna be a warrior class, and then there's gonna be all these like peasants wearing dirt bags, and, and then they're gonna till the fields, and we're all gonna party and have giant. Yes, yeah, so somehow they somehow they came up with like the transparent laminates that you do for overhead projectors, but they didn't have light bulbs, so you had to have a candle under it and yeah. a system of mirrors. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> Woo. Yeah, the transparency kept melting over time. It was really inconvenient. <laughs> the guy who went, who went uh, kingdom to kingdom with his little like pile full of goods always had to stop and repair everything. <laughs> yeah, th- th- there was a. I, I, I think it came up later in the book, but he talks about how like like capitalism is. It only exists because you know people like agreed to continue practicing it and that like if we all like really wanted to we could just wake up tomorrow and not do it (laughs) (laughs) that's how i felt like literally like 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 when when we were getting fucked like a a year ago like collectively by Uh, mit well by the world but also Um. mit specifically yes um like that was what i was that was what was going through my head Mm -hmm. or like when people were talking about like rent moratoriums and things like that i was like all this shit is just made up like the economy is a social construct like if there's a pandemic that puts everything at risk like why not just decide to like let people stay in the buildings that already exist. And it's fascinating when you look at like, like really terrible times for like societies as a whole, like often in war times, but also like the, you know, some giant famines that have happened in the history of the world. Like the rules of engagement change, but only when there's a giant extrogenous event, which shakes up things so much that there is no alternative. Like you cannot continue the status quo. And I think that's what we saw with Corona very often is like, there have been times during Corona, the age of Corona, where like all the toilet paper is gone and like what do people do and like you see people act reactionarily right and things change briefly and like how people interact changes but as long as like there's enough support for the status quo to continue it will continue yeah yeah and it takes so little to put people into that kind of a mind space like i i don't know why but i was recently reading about uh these like huge uh, blackouts in new york city in the 80s and there was like a, like, I think it might have been like an over twenty four hour period where like the entire grid in the city was down, and like there was just like a, you know a sudden intense wave of crime that happened then. Yeah, like like from a lot something of broke. And all yeah, that. Like, like from something so simple as not being able to turn the lights on and do a lot of like the necessary things that you need electricity for. Like people took that as this sort of like oh. mandate that like all the rules had ceased to apply. I, I, like I, I'm sure there's much more like. Like thoughtful, like insight into why this happened, but I mean, it, it just made me think of like how tenuous of a hold we have, like, like there is on the rules of society, yeah. and that a lot of the times it seems that like people in power, be they like middle level managers who just want to like exercise, you know, their their power for no good reason other than to prove that they have it, or like politicians and major like financial people, is that. Like their hold on power is like only exists like as far as people agree to let it like control them. 
but that it manages to to reproduce itself like time and time again. Yeah. Yeah. And to be fair, there is a lot of resistance, right? From from people who have power um to try to maintain that hold, right? Like it's like you can't like like, like you know, you can't just like go up to like cuz I've tried things like this. You can't just go up and be like, "All right, we're all going to stand against you now and that's just how it's going to be." Like Cause, cause you'll get fucked. Like, like it's like people, people. It's like when you have power yeah. for long enough, or if you're in mm-hmm. the circles of people who have, who, who, like, of a group of people who have held power. Like, they come up with ways to dissuade people from, um, you know, challenging that. You uh, might, you might burn a few cop cars, but you won't actually take down buildings. I mean, the target seemed pretty fucked up. Buildings, plural. Okay. <laughs> Just a target. Well, no, there was also the picture, like the, the show art for episode 12 was a burning Arby's. That's true. I think they also destroyed a police station. I guess we're seeing massive change then. <laughs> <laughs> no, all uh, we know is that now Arby's and police stations can spontaneously combust, which yeah. is something that has not been seen in the physical world uh, ever. Uh, so I think it's like a new age of, of, of you know, of, of new physics that's going on. Um, that's pretty interesting. If anything is prone to spontaneous combustion, it's Arby's. Makes <laughs> <laughs> sense. I, I, I thought that chapter six was a pretty interesting one. I forgot the title, but it was like like why like society allows like bullshit jobs to exist. Yeah, and there was an explanation, or, or at least like it, the chapter talked a bit about why people seem to place such an emphasis on jobs and labor, and you know like if society can exist in such a way that people don't need to work all the time, why like should we bother still working all the time? Uh, it brought up a point that I had never heard of before is that like kind of tracing back like, the value of labor to like, like all the way back to like some like writings by Hesiod, this like Greek historian or like philosopher uh, about uh, like, Christianity and how like, because I know it was, it was like, like Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden of Eden. Like, like now like you know, humans have to like toil and like suffer to, like I don't know, and to be righteous, like to be righteous. I, I'm not a, I, I'm not religious a scholar. Religious scholar, um, but it, it just seems that that's been like such a prevalent theme through history, like that people have to labor, uh, and even modern day like economists and sociologists like all seem to agree on, and like in psychologists as well like agree on, like people working and being valuable to society in certain forms, whether it, like is like people's mental well being. Or like the stability of the economy, or you name it. Like it all, like it, it seems to be this kind of uniting force. You know, like even like between like the far left and the far right, that like people working is a good thing. And that kind of made this other thought of, okay, there's like you know, forty percent of people think they have a bullshit job. All right, I don't know how you'll like deal with economic considerations, but let's just say that you told them all they can just go home and they don't have to show up anymore, and like everything will be okay. Whether that's UBI or like I don't know a, a package of food d- delivered to their doorstep every like week, like they do in South Korea. Sure, like they go home and they just stay there. All right, like 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 an actual like a lockdown how it should actually work for people who work with who aren't essential workers, right? Um, 
all right, you have this going on, and society continues to turn, and the people who are essential workers go to their jobs because they're essential, right? And the people who aren't essential workers like, continue to stay home. What would you think, as an essential worker, of all the people who are like living fancy ass lives, just sitting on their asses all day? See, but that's that's part of the that's part of the like that's part of the mind flock, man. Right? It's like, it, it, like 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 it is one of those things where it's, it's it is incredibly frustrating. And I think that in in a scenario like that, um, ideally, instead of just being like everyone goes from all this work to zero work, because that has its own problems, which is talked about later yeah, in the yeah, book. Yeah. Uh, the fact that like. Like, like like talking about things like um the fact that like like in in prisons like uh people will take away prisoners like like works yeah yeah just as like punishment yeah and so there's there, there's things about that where it's like people like people want to work they just don't want to work like like, like, like doing sit stuff. around doing nothing yeah they don't want to sit around doing nothing they don't want to do stuff that they think is dumb or bullshit or whatever like 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 they they want their work to be valuable and have an effect on a tangible effect on the world so i think in in a situation like that where you have like oh the, like we have to do this like we have to take everything down to like essential work like you know in in a scenario where you have enough power to tell people to to not do that to just go from all that work to zero work and everything is fine yeah um you would probably also want to have some way of redistributing the work that is already available so like instead of you know people who work at like 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 say that there is a like a society where like Fifty percent of people work at a fulfillment center, and then fifty percent of people are telemarketers. All right. um, and then you like you tell all the telemarketers to to go home and stop. Work. I would call that sad tone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, right, continue. So so so, so the, a pandemic breaks out, and then, so you tell all the telemarketers to 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 stay home, and so you know the fulfillment center workers are working forty hours a week, and then the telemarketers are working zero hours a week. Clearly, the better like distribution would be to have everyone working twenty hours a week on the on the on the uh, fulfillment center work, and and that would be sort of a better thing. And then you could also spread like you could also maybe spread people out more. I'm not actually sure like what what the scenario what the thing would be telemarketer. Or, or no, you could spread people out more, and so the, the pandemic becomes less of an issue in the, in that sort of situation, I guess. Um, so, so there are ways that you can that you can do something like that if you have that level of power that would make things better. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't want telemarketers to 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 not work anymore. I mean, who <laughs> would I be talking to during this pandemic if it not were for the te- telemarketers? Hmm. If it were not for the telemarketers, there you go. You can use that as the <laughs> take two. <laughs> Yeah, and I I admit again and again and again that I need to read more about this, but it, like it gets complicated because the wages of a fulfillment center worker as they are now aren't enough to live above the poverty line at twenty hours a week. Yeah, but also money is a social construct. <laughs> sure, but like there are people with power, and you know because they have a big pile of money, mm-hmm. who are hoarding it like dragons, and there's not the political power to break free from this consolidation that's gone on yeah and it's one of those things where it's like i get that's 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 a project on that's a whole thing that's a project and like you know it's an interesting it's a, it's it's a, an interesting useful project but also an incredibly dangerous project i think um because it does threaten like sort of like fundamental power dynamics that people exist and then because these to, dragons like, own the presses they own the sites <laughs> now you're know. getting into tinfoil hot territory 
Well, I mean, like, Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. That's true, yeah. Like, it's not tinfoil hat territory. It, it, people say it's I'm, I'm saying calling them dragons. It's like, it's like suddenly they're <laughs> reptiles. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's ridiculous. They're not actually <laughs> reptiles. Yeah. Never mind. But you get on my, my drift, right? Where it's like, there's, there's, it's not going to happen suddenly. I think what you might see is, like, during the corona, right? The age of corona. Like, we've got these, like, we- stimulus checks. And I think they just, like, throw a dart at a dartboard <laughs> to figure out how much the money's going to be in that. Yeah. But, um, like... By, by the way, like, I don't know if I sent you guys the current affairs article that I had read that was, like, $1,400 is, like, a terrible political move. Is like, the worst move. Because it was, like... Like, it was, like, the, the, the two, like, Georgia Senate seats were, like, oh, well, if you vote for me, I'll give you $2,000. And then everybody's, like, oh, it's 600 plus 1400 It's, like, what are you doing? <laughs> so well, it's, it's, it's called basic math, Hadrian. <laughs> like, you have a, a, an MIT degree. You have an MIT it's education. You, it's, clearly, it's not enough if you can't do basic math. Now, when, like, all of these... Uh, you know, so-called diehard Democrats, like, n- you know, know all the math there is. <laughs> <laughs> they, they only, they know one equation, and it's the most important one. And that's 600 <laughs> plus 1,400. Anyway, what are you saying? The, 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 the stimulus <laughs> equation. I'm saying that in the age of corona, like, the government has just been, like, duct taping, like, these, like, packages together. And, like, c- like because of Trump, I guess, right? Because he's, he's the one who said 1,200 the first time. Right, like they're all, they're all like sort of being for, like pushed by the general public as they should be to provide general funds for like getting out, just getting food, I guess. Like because you can't pay for rent in most places with that amount of money for this long, as long as the pandemic's been on. Maybe food, right? But like now the government's been pushed to like provide this basic amount of money to like adults and kids to some degree through their their guardians to like pay for some basic good services and food. And like when the pandemic's over and like. All the economic fallout is still there. Janet, uh, Janet Yellen and Powell, like two people who are basically in charge of the U.S. economy, uh, the Fed and the Reserve, uh, Federal Reserve, um, are, are saying that like unemployment is much bigger and the labor participation rate is going down. Like, you need to keep this up because things are only getting worse. It's like, will that become some sort of like welfare for everyone UBI hybrid? Will it be like? killed by some sort of neoliberal conservative like super far-right conservative congress like because if they do kill it then we'll just be even worse position you'll see tons of businesses fail and like this like inflation rise but but actually not serve any purpose because then the purchasing power of the average consumer will have decreased it's getting really weird in an economic sense because yeah, like not that people are dependent at all on the very small amount of money they have been given, but the very small amount of money they have been given has been life changing for a lot of people, especially the unemployment money, which it was pretty significant for compared to all all of America before now. And like, what do you what do you do with that when it's over and the and the damage and the bleeding is still there? Mm. It's just been done so haphazard. Uh, it's not nearly as organized as, as the book would would hope the system would be. Well, I, I guess uh, so. So now I think we are in the second segment. Hooray! Does, do, do the do the do the second segment kazoo? <laughs> second segment. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I don't think that. Well, well, first of all, like um, as 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 I I hope I mentioned earlier in this podcast, um, the the book 
uh, talking about UBI as a, as a policy was like sort of like meant as like, oh, this is just one suggestion. I don't want the whole book to be about this. And so he doesn't go into a whole lot of detail about what exactly that would entail. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so that, 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 that's the one thing. And so it's like, I, I think that, um, <laughs> sorry, uh, sorry. I just totally drew. A There's just so many thoughts about how money works in my head this whole hour that, it's kind of been melting my head. So. Yeah, it, it, it's just one of those things where it's like it's like you would think that with something this uh, drastic that has happened to the world, that people would sort of step up to the plate and try to try to do things like that. That you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. But instead, you have like yeah, our political class. Well, the people. collective ADHD that we all have, especially now, is kind of like throwing us all in this disarray of like jumping between ideas and thoughts. Yeah, but that, so so what actually matters is the people that have the power. Yeah, and the people that have the power like are sitting on their asses, and they're just kind of like you know, coming up with dumb Jedi mind tricks to fool the public. Like even the fucking Democrats are like trying to fuck with people, like trying to screw people out of their money. We can't put minimum wage in reconciliation. That's just, we, we can't do it. The rules say we can't. Yeah. It's just whatever nonsense that people come up with to, pre- to prevent people from getting the help that they need. Um, and like, and, and, and sort of like within the framework of the fact that like, there are a bunch of people who are like, it's, it's like, there's this kind of like I guess what people call Protestant work work ethic, which is also deconstructed in this book in a very interesting way. Um, like even in history classes, um, like that was the thing of like American history is like in the times of the Puritans, you know, people were building houses during the winter, and it's and you know because people were lazy and stupid, you had to say if you don't work, you don't eat, and that's what we do now as a country forever. Like uh, th- th- that was kind of how it was explained to me as a kid. But do you think that like most of our Congress people are actually like these belt buckle hat wearing Puritans who feel that if the Americans don't work, they'll be spiritually unwell. Yes. Really? Not in the literal sense that you're putting it, but like, I think that the, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought I was, I wish they did. <laughs> I, I, I think that like, there are like, this is going to be very pretentious. Theological remnants. This is kind of like a Vsauce term. Uh, <laughs> like, 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 there's kind of like the ghost of like that kind of like. The, I mean, I don't know if you've been to Washington D.C. and visited like government buildings, but they're like Greco-Roman styled architecture. Mm. You know, there's like glorious eagles and statues of people wearing old antiquity clothes and stuff yeah but uh, yeah that, so that's the symbolic part of it but also like that same kind of like that, that it's the attitude that pervades for centuries yeah. that, that, that we're leading to and, and so it leads to people having this sort of default notion of like oh if you just give people money they're gonna sit around and like play xbox and jerk off all day and it's like uh this is something this is something that i, I talked well, about you say- <laughs> isn't that like the point of capitalism yeah. <laughs> what like, do you mean? So, well, so well that, like you know, like like you know, to create a prosperous society so that people can you know bathe in the riches of you know just fucking around and playing Xbox, so you don't that's have the goal play. of capitalism. Oh, yeah. Misky's making a wanking motion right now. <laughs> <laughs> we have Xbox. <laughs> we have the wanks. We have uh, to roll the dice on these Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> the commies didn't create the Xbox. They had they had Tetris. They had they had the Dendi, I think, which was the knockoff of the NES. <laughs> yeah, not nearly as fun. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those things where, where, where it's like it's like you know, people say that it's like oh, if you don't give people if, if people don't work, they're just going to sit around and be lazy all day. And it's like, well, one, that's actually not true. 
Um, and two, so fucking what if people want to do that? Like we're the well, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Like we have f- resources for fucking centuries. Like, like, right. like, does it honestly matter? Like it, it, we're making up shit for people to do that has no worth. It's like, that's how prosperous we are. Is like, we're pretending to ration out all this shit to each other. So like, what's like, like then what, like, what is the point of like pretending that work is somehow this virtuous thing other than to just, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of oppressive in a sense. Adrian, you, you, you make it seem as if we're living in a communist state <laughs> where everyone is, is given a job to do. <laughs> well, if you don't, you, well, everyone needs a job or they starve. Yeah, but even then, like, you know, 1401, they'll be like, oh, well, there's a there's an unemployment rate that's, like, the stable amount. And, like, I remember when I took, like, microecon in, in, like, high school or whatever, that that always, like, struck me as kind of weird. Like, the fact that, like, sort of, like, this sort of basic economical paradigm or whatever that people learn in high school, like, says that, like, there is a stable unemployment rate and there is no social safety net for the people for the 1 in 20 people in who in an ideal situation would not have work so there's so 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 like you know like 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 in in this like high school paradigm like 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 there's always 1 in 20 people who are like just suffering just and it's because that's the ideal scenario for 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 them and it's like and it's one of those things where it's like full employment is also bad because that also leads to bullshit jobs which is talked about in the book uh, and, and the reason for unemployment, as, as I understand it, is, is that or, or the fact that there's not full un, uh, employment is that it, it's supposed to keep wages competitive. Yeah, and, yeah, exactly. I was going to say, like, the reason that they, they call it the stable unemployment rate is because if everyone has a job, right, and everyone, uh, if everyone has a job, you can't easily hire someone new. So every like everyone is encouraged to slack a little bit and to like look for new opportunities that pay them a little bit more. And so when there's actually zero unemployment, inflation starts going up very fast. Mm. You'll start to see like seven, eight percent per year, ten percent increase in prices over year when you when you see everyone has a job. Yeah, but the thing about slacking is that like 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 slacking as a concept like is kind of strange to me. Having gone to MIT. Like I know people who just like will work in, like you, Miski specifically. <laughs> uh, like you work two jobs for no fucking reason. Like, <laughs> like, and, and, and so it's one of those things where it's like, as long as people like you exist in the world, like there's plenty of work. <laughs> there's pl- plenty of work will be done, right? Like, 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 like while our my while bre- the work- my bread's almost done rising. <laughs> <laughs> while the work ethic of people is like sort of like highly variant. Um, and also the work ethic of people at MIT specifically is like sort of like unusually high. It's like that more I, like this is actually talked about in the book that more than makes up for the slackers of the world. It's like the people people like us who all work relatively hard and you who works incredibly hard. Like 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 it's like, you know, as long like as long as those people exist, which they will, regardless of what the poly situation is like things will get done and the world will be a better place. And you'll have people like Jonas Salk who give away the polio vaccine instead of fucking patenting it or whatever. Uh, But there are certain people that we know at MIT who, uh, if they created such a vaccine like Jonas Salk, would have patented the hell out of it. Hell yeah. And uh, criticized everyone who disagreed with them as uh, uh, moral fighters, SJW nerds or whatever. Yeah, and, and people were, that we know specifically. Yeah, and there were, and there would be articles about saying like, "Oh, Russia's trying to steal our vaccine." Like, I don't know. Great, that's awesome. Everyone has a cure. All right, <laughs> everyone can live. It's like, no, it's bad that they're stealing our research. It's like, yeah, but they're trying. They're, they also have people there that are trying not to die. What is what does competition and the value of competition mean to you? 
as a person and like largely as you think of it in the world as a person very little i'm not a competitive person at all uh, despite what you may think from us playing cards together um like <laughs> like, 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 you know, I'm pretty bad at things, uh, like, like, like at a lot of things. And so I try not to be competitive yeah. too much because it, because it gets to, to my head or whatever. Um, and then also like, I don't know, it just like, like, that's just never how I do things. It's like, I, I always think about like, I'm very self-critical, so I don't think about competition very often. I think, I think that's something that can vary a lot between individuals. And I actually kind of want to ask you too as well. Like, what does competition mean to you and how do you see it in the larger world? Yeah, I I mean I, I think I can be a pretty competitive person. It definitely depends. I mean c- certainly in games and sports when there's like when the objective is to win, I definitely want to win. And do you think that that desire to win and that competitiveness in you allows you to more often succeed as if you had not had that competitive uh urge or feeling? I don't know if it makes me succeed. It definitely makes me work harder. Mm, like, which could lead itself to success. Yeah. Uh, like that was certainly the case for when I did science Olympiad in middle school and high school, like you get medals and ribbons for like scoring better than the other kids. And people look at you and say, wow, you got those medals yeah. and ribbons. And, yeah. and it's like, it's a kind of a trip. Mm-hmm. And like, even though the point is learning and that's like really what the focus should be on, like I also wanted to get like shiny medals and At shit. the end of the day, everyone's at the end, you know, in the auditorium yeah. at the end of the day, end of the science Olympiad event. I, I did science Olympiad too. And everyone's kind of like. Everyone forgets about science and engineering for a moment, and they're all just like eyeing each other like pieces of meat, and they're just like, "I bet I'm gonna get the blue one," <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's it's interesting phenomenon, and it's kids. Yeah, and like, I probably would not have tried to learn as much had I not had that incentive. Yeah. So I think that competition, like with like guardrails, so that it doesn't just become competition for the sake of like itself, it can be a good thing in, in certain. Okay. Yeah. But what about like in college? Because, or, or, or MIT specifically, because um, I also had that same competitive like <clears throat> mindset in high school. Like, because I, I did uh, UIL uh, in Texas. <laughs> Hell yeah. Which, which Hadrian, Hadrian knows. Um, I did like uh, competitive like math, computer science. Uh, we also had a thing called calculators, but I also wasn't. Uh, I was I was better at math. I was like really good at math. We didn't have any of that shit, by the way. <laughs> that competitiveness, you know, allowed me to like really grow, you know, as like someone who's like wanting to learn more about math and science and stuff. Uh, but then getting to my T, like all of that, <laughs> I pooped out. Why? Why do you gone. think it, it's 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 all it's all because because like everything like uh, like once I had heard about you know MIT or at least like specifically the collaboration that people have with each other there are no rankings uh you're like incentivized to work with each other to get through it because of how difficult it is i will say compared um, to other universities it is collaboration and, and not having this ranking mm-hmm. system is something that makes mit quite unique it's 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 far above like better than if i had actually like the only other place i would have gone was ut which is ironically where i am at here as a grad student um you know, here in a bunch of other places, I'm pretty sure there are like you know, ranking systems. There's like summa cum laude or whatever the fuck those words mean. Um, <laughs> normal people don't know what those words are. Summa cum laude. Uh, it's a category. Please on a certain do website. not say gross things. Here. <laughs> uh, like the, the, I, I would have. I don't know. I, I think um, like having known that some place like MIT existed with with that structure that it had, um, I. 
probably would have very much not liked uh, the competitiveness in college if I had gone to UT, especially with like a, a large school as it is, um, easy to get yourself lost in. Um, I think I would have really, really disliked it. And I, I think I still would have like been me, you know, I, I still would have like learned for the sake of learning. Cause like, that's like, I, that's why I'm a grad student. Right. Um, but it's, it's something that I think is cool and, 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 and good for high school or at least for like, where nothing matters. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're still a kid. Uh, but once you're like actually like learning to, it's like training, right? Yeah. Um, when you're, when you're doing this training in college and in grad school and stuff, like, I, that 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 stuff should be snuffed out All right. to some extent. All right, I don't want to be I don't want to be too extreme. <laughs> well, I mean, in general, in the real world, we don't necessarily benefit by always being competitive with each other. Very few times in history has pure competition led to a better outcome than economists would disagree with that. Well, Sears Roebuck would double disagree with that. <laughs> well, they're bankrupt, so exactly. <laughs> yeah. I would also agree that no competition is just as bad as pure, you know, unadulterated hunter-gatherers ripping each other to shreds in the like Serengeti competition. Um, but there's guardrails. Like, there's a system with reasonable and echoing rules in place. Basically, what I think is that, like, uh, like society shouldn't, like, construct itself around the value of competition, I think. Like, it's like, yes competition is healthy you know it encourages people to do better and all this kind of stuff but like you know in 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 the same like 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 basically like what what shouldn't happen is like what we currently have which is like you know people have like there's a thing i guess a competition of sorts for like richest man in the world right it's like who who can collect the most money tokens and like right now like jeff bezos and elon musk are neck and neck um and like that kind of competition has like uh, severe, uh, dis- like negative outcomes. Find, yeah, on, disgusting effects on the rest of the world. Uh, that th- that kind of that kind of hoarding of wealth is bad and dangerous. Yeah, there's obviously still lots of scarcity in the world, and there are always there's an ever growing number of mouths to to have scarcity to 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 deal with. You know, mm. um, so it's like with all that's been talked about in bullshit jobs and you know the economic forces that exist that have cause them to exist and why we need to get rid of them to benefit society as as a whole. How does that affect the role of scarcity in how our economy and how our economic structures work today? Well, I, I wish I knew like how scarce things were like, that's, that's obviously hard to keep track of. I, I do think like, you know, like, 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 like I hypothesize or whatever that we would have enough to, to do UBI in America. Mm-hmm. And, there is, of course, a larger question to be had about, oh, what about other countries and all that kind of stuff? Like, how do we yeah. figure that out? But, like, as within the confines of our country, I do think that we, like, have enough and we produce enough as a, as a country that we could, like, allow people to not work as much. And there are societies that I think actually get away with less work and still manage to have what yeah, the necessities. Yeah. Certainly. Like, if you got, like, Mongolia, right? They have lots fewer, they have many fewer iPads than we do, yeah. right? But everyone's still, most people still have a bowl of food. Yeah. Right? Well, so I don't know. I've never been. Most people, I don't know. I, I think Mongolia's HDI, Human Development Index, is, like, not obviously as high as U.S., but it's not like they're living in dirt huts, right? Mm. And the implications for this, like, in the greater context of the world and, like, 
how people interact between borders can definitely shift as economic models change. Because, um, like, let's say, so let's say in America you institute a really robust UBI, and there are there are millions of people who who can and choose to not really do much with their day at all, right? How does a person from Bolivia who's like, you know, be, back is beaten to a pulp from like carrying goats all day? Think of someone who's fortunate enough to be born in the United States who can jerk off and play Xbox and drink Mountain Dew all day. It's like I just pulled the shit straw and now I gotta carry goats for my whole life. Like, how come they this person just out of fortune can live in this pile of their own hedonism and I have to carry goats? I mean, I, I think it was just like the inherent inequality of the world as it is now. But I mean, it's not you know neckbeard sitting around drinking Mountain Dew's fault. Like <laughs> he just got lucky. Yeah, like, like he like he just got lucky, and so this you know theoretical you know Bolivian farmer should really be pointing the finger at the people who you know control power in Bolivia who aren't you know doing similar things or whatever. Or maybe he really likes farming, and hope you hope so. I, <laughs> I I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Some people like their jobs, but maybe, maybe there's a guy who really hates it. <laughs> <laughs> So he could he could always emigrate to the United States. Oh wait, <sighs> there's been an interesting trend in uh, U.S. Congress about kind of turning a back on free trade, which we know we you know for like decades now, globalization free trade has been like a paramount has received paramount support in the U.S. Congress in both parties. But in the last decade or so, we've definitely seen like a, a, an about face. Like Biden's administration still hasn't changed the tariffs on China, and like. Some economists say that's probably for the better. Some of them say, oh, no, it's terrible. Like, then you got to look at who their financial supporters are, and it gets pretty messy pretty fast. But, like, it's it's been interesting, and I don't know how things are going to turn out. Um, there was, like, decades of period in which borders were being, like, sort of, like, made less important, but now we're kind of in this period of time where they're becoming more important. And I, I just don't know what the implications are for, like, people's pocketbooks, the coffers of governments, it, it's it's all weird, and I definitely would like to learn more about it, but it's kind of something that I'm balancing with all my other interests. Does anyone else have any feelings about geopolitical implications of UBI or bullshit jobs? Well, the only thing about UBI that had been on my, on my mind for like the past year, or at least when I first heard about it, when Andrew Yang started talking about it, and then it turns out that like his version would have like sucked out a lot of uh, welfare benefits from people with disabilities. Yeah, well he was he was going to say um, that like replace all of these systems with UBI. Like no more social security, no more welfare, no more disabilities, no more comp, no more workers more benefit, just UBI is what he was saying. That's how we'll pay for it. Yeah. So, uh you know, seeing that being like, uh okay, I guess. <laughs> uh but then, you know, looking more into it. Um I I did see someone write about like um you know, the benefits of this, and I think looking at a summary that I'm reading um, about the last chapter of Bullshit Jobs, uh, that if someone, if we were to have this universal basic income and it's like a society where people can finally like like choose whether or not they want to work, because a lot of people like to say that um, you 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 have a choice of like where you want to work and stuff, and a lot of and sometimes it's not that's that's not true. In fact, most of the time it's not true. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I want it to be generous, but yes, most of the time it isn't true. Um, depending on your economic situation or your socioeconomic situation, um, 
you are very limited in what you choose. But if you if, if like something like UBI were to exist, um, obviously, you know, with some other um, caveats and stuff. But if something like that were to exist, then you would have people be able to say, uh, or like you would have the ability to, uh, you know, choose which, uh, you know, uh, jobs you would you'd want to uh, take part in. Um, right now, people can't say, uh, you know, I quit. And uh, when they do that, they immediately feel the economic consequences of it, right? No money, can't pay rent, all that stuff. But if you have this, you know, universal basic income and you wouldn't have to worry about any of that stuff, uh, I'll, then, um, like, the, I would say, like, the, the logical conclusion of that is, like, the distribution of jobs just, like, massively changes. I guess, like, practical implications aside of, like, the farmer in Bolivia. By the way, like, like as, as a response to that, um, like, you know, I, I see the picture of, like, the care package that people get in South Korea. And I'm like, why the fuck aren't we doing that, huh? Um, but anyways, um, like, the, the, the point that is made in the chapter itself is that we could have a society where you can separate your work from your livelihood, uh, and then that will allow you to basically do whatever you think of doing. And and like the the assumptions that uh, that that people would make about like oh people are lazy, people don't want to work or do anything productive, blah blah blah. Like all that stuff is debunked earlier in the book, or at least he makes an attempt to argue against it, uh, like an honest attempt and a pretty good one in my opinion. Um, and so like that, that that that's sort of the the purpose of it is like just like imagine a world where like. It's like it's like you can you can do whatever work that you want to do, um, and you don't have to worry about like like you know basically like sacrificing something to do the work that you really want to do. It's like you know people talk about like you know do what you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life or whatever. Like that kind of shit. Like that that sounds so stupid <laughs> now. Like 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 like. Would be it would be nice if that kind of stuff was like actually like practically attainable for for most for like the general public. Mm-hmm. Like 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 it's like you know like there are there there are hobbies that I have that I really appreciate doing and spending a lot of time on. And it's like I wish I had more time to do those things. What? Are you, can I stop you? Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> With a question. All right. Let's say you could get paid to do the music stuff that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like I don't know a government. Uh, UBI system. It's like, all right, Mr. Merced, here's here's a third of what you're currently receiving at your job. Uh, that that wouldn't be enough. I don't exactly think. right. Like, I don't think the government. Wait, what are you <laughs> what are you talking about? What <laughs> what is the point that you're trying to make though? Uh, like, you a UBI system pro- like likely wouldn't be able to per- pay the salaries of of many people who like would want to like change. No, but that no what I'm saying is the whole point of like it's like you wouldn't implement I mean like America would, but like ideally you would like 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 it's like if 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 there was like good politics happening, like you wouldn't implement like a half finished UBI system where I'm people sure don't have enough money to like actually properly live. It's like the point of doing it is so that you don't have to like make those considerations. And so like if if someone tried to offer me a third of my salary, it would be like as long as I can like live in an apartment where like I can pay for rent and i have enough food and all that kind of stuff like these are considerations that like also have to be accounted for in the logistics of implementing the ubi system like you can't just kind of like half acid and be like we're gonna give people whatever. i'm sure they would have acid uh, yes they would but but i'm undoubtedly <laughs> yes. but 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 the thing is it's like it's like it, it's like 
I, I like I think that like at large it is it is kind of important to have these kind of like utopian ideas and like try oh, to figure out I'm not like, stopping you there. Yeah. And 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 also to think about like what what it would take to get to that point. Because like this is like something that I find like kind of like unfortunately incredibly common is that like you know like 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 I'll be in a conversation with somebody and, and talk about something that I would like like for example like having everybody have health care <laughs> um and and they'd be like and they kind of like kind like gotcha. yeah they, they come up with all the gotchas and stuff and, and and the thing that like can be frustrating is like when I know that the person is on my side uh, and, but they're trying, to, yeah, exactly. And but they keep trying to shoot it down. And it's like, you know, what would be more productive is like <laughs> trying to trying to find ways that this could work instead of trying to find ways that this couldn't work. I'm sorry, I do play devil's advocate more than I'd personally like to. It's just that sometimes it's like I'm just so frustrated. It's like I only can enjoy the devil's advocacy. Yeah, but but it's like it's like it's like the world is already so negative. It's like we have enough doom saying in the world as it is currently. We're like, full up. No more. Yeah, it, it 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 it's like it's like you know if you if you want to listen to a podcast where people were talk about how everything is bullshit and nothing matters, you can listen to Chop with Trap House. With people that I agree with, I would like to have more conversations about what it will take to get to a certain point. All right, let me, let me just give me a minute. I'll figure out the, the solution. <laughs> well, uh, hearing you say, like, uh, you know, the UBI would be able to, like, detach, you know, your livelihood from work. Uh, in this Zoom era we're living in. <laughs> <laughs> we're Zoomers. That's true. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Uh, that's, it's, it's not really possible um, uh, because, uh, well, you know, since we, one, we don't have a UBI, um, but, but also, like, it's made it very difficult to, you know, separate like, all right, here, this is a work day, right? You, you wake up, I don't know, 9 a.m., go to work, come back at 5 p.m., and you're in your house. You're done with work sometimes, you know, unless you bring work with you. You're done with work, you can relax, I guess, and you're in your house. But it's not possible because you're living in your house and you're also working in your house. It's all mixed. And, and, and living in your house and working in your house all the time. And there's like not really any pause from that. You can give yourself pauses, right? Like univer- like I guess in in students in college's case, universities tell you to like take breaks and stuff. There's like at least from what I heard at MIT does like there's like specific days or I don't know, it's like that you have like Zoom breaks or you know, meditation or mindfulness stuff or yeah. exercises. And it's such a weird thing cuz like that still doesn't take away from the fact that you're doing it in your bedroom. Um, and like, yeah, you just can't get away from it no matter what you can do. And, the, and by the fact, by them trying to push this on you, like they are furthering their control of your time and your attention towards exercises yeah. to help you forget that they have control over your time <laughs> and your attention. Yeah. That's, that's what I was going to get to. Yeah. Yeah. The way they talk about like the, the mindfulness retreats that they put people on, which is very funny. It, 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 it was like an interesting kind of like indirect send up of 10% happier. Yeah. All right. I'll be more idealist. Uh, and, and Hector mentioned Yang earlier, but like UBI certainly could could exist in America. There is definitely the money and the and, and the and the the money. I'll just say money. There is the resources there to create it for everyone. Um, the amount that it would be would not probably be significant, right? It would it would be something like what you what we saw during like Bill Clinton's years of welfare, and like but like it would certainly be enough to like live in good most of the country on a fairly simple living. Um, I guess like. That, that can definitely exist in what we've seen in America before. I guess the question is like when people get hungry and they want more than that basic st- like living, 
like how do you how do you uh, give them that if they're if they're looking for it if they're ambitious enough and they're willing to like spend their time or like <laughs> sit in this managerial feudalism you know that that is an interesting question but it's like i i think that there is from 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 what i read at least and you've read you've read that section more recently than i have yeah. the section on ubi um so 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 like and and it talks about some of the work that people are doing um i i don't necessarily think that they're like they're, they're they're striving for like an exact thing where like everyone makes exactly the same amount of money and like everyone has exact it's like pure communism right like like that's not exactly like what's going on it's like th- there is there is opportun- there are opportunities for people to do work if they would like to but it's one of those things where it's like because of like the nature of money itself it's like it's kind of hard to like think about how that would work in practice like ver- like 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 sort of like relative to what we currently have um, but it is a thing where it's like, yeah, if people want to do more work, like they're free to do more work. If they want to have like, I don't know, nice pro audio gear or whatever, like, yeah. like, you know, those things I assume would be being manif- manufactured by the people who are already doing that work because it doesn't pay particularly well. What if the people who are doing that choose that they'd rather take UBI than build the professional audio equipment? So be it, I guess. But I think I think enough people have like passion for that kind of work that they that they would want to yeah. do it. I'm sure. I mean, like I, I shouldn't give you these hypotheticals. I'm sure somebody would do it. Maybe that means the price of it, because the supply decreases, the price of it goes up somewhat, and then somebody has to take a bullshit job to pay for it. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Even uh, should we like, regulate? Sorry, but should we regulate a company's ability to create bullshit jobs? It, it's like the argument made there. It's like if you like, like yeah, if you separate work from livelihood, then it's yeah. like people will not choose to take bullshit jobs. So like that 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 in itself is kind of a, a regulatory thing. It's like nobody nobody like nobody actually wants to be like a receptionist for somebody when when to like take two calls a day and sit around for eight hours playing what solitaire. If, what if you're like the, I think his name's his fake name was Eric. But like you literally do nothing, and you can go on those business trips and do drugs in like London or whatever. Mm. What if you? What if like you made a concerted effort to get like forty of those jobs, and all of a sudden you're making a million dollars a year, and like pulling in from all these different companies, right? Wouldn't that be really weird? Like I don't know, maybe there's someone who actually has done done this, but like, how would that person be seen by a society which was trying to implement UBI? I guess I'm not understanding like why you're asking that question. It's well, like so like. If a company's allowed to create bullshit jobs, and like, I guess why I'm how I'm getting there is like, let's say you have UBI and like people can have a basic standard of living, but some people want a little bit more, and so they willingly take a bullshit job. But wh- why would they take a bullshit job instead of taking a job for something that they actually would care to do to spend their time with? It's like if the whole purpose of having this is that you have like more freedom over your time, you wouldn't then consent to do some bullshit that you don't care about. You would end up like you know working on cancer research or whatever the fuck. Wait, is it because Bisky's assuming that like the bullshit jobs still pay more than the jobs that are it meaningful? It augments your income enough, and let's say you only really need to be there ten hours a week, or like present ten hours a week, and you're still pulling in like a full salary. Like the case of that one, per- like one or two people I read in the book, mm. and like, <sighs> I mean, that would still be a better situation than what we currently. Have. Sure, it's just, it's just, I'm just, see- I'm just trying to foresee problems. I guess maybe I should stop being so negative, but like unique things that we that aren't existing in existence now that might appear in this, in this scenario we're trying to dream up. Basically what I think, what I think uh, is that, is that like you're kind of getting caught up in like a bunch of like random edge cases. Sure. And like, and like, I think that like 
like, like, like we can sit around all day imagining like ways that things could go wrong. But I think that it's like it's like the thing where people argue against welfare by saying like, oh, this person has an iPhone and a refrigerator. It's like, OK, well, good for them. Like, like, like it's like people will take like like people will uh, abuse a system or take advantage of it or whatever. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those things shouldn't exist. And also, it doesn't really necessarily mean that there need to be all these bureaucratic loopholes added to it to ensure that people don't try to, because like the amount of administrative overhead required to do that kind of an extra enforcement is also a waste of resources to a degree, right? Like if there was no <laughs> enforcement at the IRS at all, like if they stopped doing audits completely, everyone would start putting in returns for like twenty dollars. Yeah, no. So you do the exact minimum amounts of which of, is kind of, of what we're doing now. What? Like the IRS has been gutted for resources for years now. Like the audit rate has continued to drop at the IRS. Right. Uh, well, yeah, but in that case, it's not actually because a lot of people are making are like stealing basically from the government at, at high levels of wealth. Yeah. And they don't have the resources to audit that, and then they're losing money as a result. But I'm, but I'm thinking like there are cases where like the administrative overhead required for people to collect on welfare, for instance, is probably a lot higher and a lot more wasteful. Same with uh, hiring police officers at uh, MTA stations to to not hop turnstiles and shit like yeah, that. Yeah, sure. So, so like that overhead does exist, and it, and it, and it's and it's like part of the thing is like trying to eliminate that bureaucracy because that bureaucracy, I believe, like like Graeber would have said that that kind of bureaucracy also sort of constitutes bullshit jobs in a way that 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 like the the administrative overhead required to to sort of like do all of these little clauses and extra sections to try to prevent people from gaming the system or what have you, like those are also not. Worth. Having. I did read somewhere that the IRS for every dollar the IRS is funded additionally from where they are now, gets them an extra three dollars back. Yeah. So they're at a point on the curve where funding the IRS more will allow the U.S. government to pull in more money. Right. So I'm not talking about the IRS because UBI is welfare. So that's completely separate. Yeah. I mean, I guess you do claim welfare as income on taxes, but anyway. Yeah. But it, yeah, it, it is kind of it, it, like, it's like this whole like separate issue of just like like and that is also talked about. I think is it talked about in like chapter six or seven, maybe. W- which one? The the fact that like uh, the, the bureaucratic overhead of like adding like loopholes and little yeah, things like I, that. I forget when it comes up, but like I mean, it's you can get so into the weeds on it. I don't think it's really worth talking about in like a vague sense because mm. like like you said, you can just go into endless edge cases. But I mean, I I, I agree with what you said that it's broadly true that. Like you can over design a policy, and this is something that even mainstream people like this is something that comes up all the time in the economics and public policy classes that I've taken is that you can over design a policy to the point where administering it is just not worth it the u s and, 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 and yeah and, and and that's the true in all sorts of cases, and we don't need to get into that and I think that and and I think that UBI would do a lot of good in terms of just simplification of policy. Because I, I think the way that things currently are is that they're very arcane and hard to understand and hard to deliver, and there are way too many, you know, checks and tests and you name it. Something I, I learned at MIT that like has changed my whole view towards like academia is, and I guess higher learning in general is like when in, when I was in high school. Like writing more words down was seen as like being more knowledgeable or being smarter. And like, I hated that, by the way. And 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 like I learned at MIT that if you can convince somebody of the same thing using fewer words, you should always do it. Like there is no reason to add unnecessary content and like edge cases and talk more about something if your audience already understands and things are and, and it's, it comes across clearly. Yeah. And it's same with, thing with policy. It's like you don't need to add subsections N through Z if like 
you already catch 99% of the things with A through D. What? There we go. <laughs> oh, oh, oh! You're talking about uh, the the hellstorm from last week. Yeah. Oh, I mean, um, well, Hagen, you, your family's still in Texas, right? Yeah, they, they they were out of internet, I think, but they didn't run out of power. I had a friend in Arlington who was out of power for like two day, uh, four days or something. He listens to this podcast, so hi, Logan. <laughs> uh, so back home, or I wasn't back home. I was in Austin, or I'm still in Austin, but. You know, my, I was like, you know, trying to call my, you know, my family every now and then, like, you know, each day to just make sure what's up. Um, I think over there back home at the border, um, there was like, they had like power outages, um, maybe for like a few days, and then they're okay. Um, they have like, you know, water and stuff, so it was like, it was like, it was like fine. They're, they're I think they were okay. Um, but here in Austin, it was just like fucked from the get go. Um, like, like at least personally, like you know, like my roommate and I were fine. I think on Sunday, you know, not this past Sunday, but I guess the week of, we lost power, then we got it back, and then we had no internet for like four or five days. Um, we did have water, uh, but in the tor- in the middle of the week, uh, like we got noticed that Austin's water treatment facilities like just don't work. Um, because of pipes bursting and, 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 and whatnot. So, uh, so the water was dirty. We couldn't use it. Uh, I had my bottle of water, but I needed to use it for like everything. Uh, so, you know, after like, I think by Thursday or Friday, my kitchen, our kitchen sink was just like, it was like a mountain of, of, of plates, uh, and, and pots and pans and all that stuff. Uh, it's it's uh, it's just so disgusting to wash it with water with the water bottles. Um. Anyway, Wait, you couldn't wash uh, you could couldn't wash the dishes with. I mean, I guess the water was. Not, we have a dishwasher, but it's like you know, doesn't really get to 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, okay. Which is like I think what the city it's was recommended. Like. Recommended sure. for you to use, right? You had, did you have gas um, or do you have electric stoves? No, no, we had we had electric. I mean, that by you know we only lost power that one time, so we were able to like you know boil water and stuff. But um, you know, I had like plenty of bottled water, so I decided to use that because it was just much faster. Um, it was good that you know by Saturday or sun, the the next Saturday or Sunday, like we were able to get some groceries, but it's still limited. Like H E B, you know, the grocery store doesn't. Only lets you like buy like two chickens, um, not not real you know live chickens, but like chicken <laughs> yes. breast packages, two gallons of water and like stuff like that. So it's very limited. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think the water. I mean, we start. We were able to like have you know the water is fine now. I think as of like Monday or Sunday. Um. But yeah, it's a, it was a real a real lesson to to people, you know. Always make sure to have your power off. Uh, make sure make sure to keep <laughs> snow in the bathtub so you can flush the toilet. Yeah, um, and it's definitely not a lesson about how deregulation has led to uh, this entire state of Texas to be you know effectively seceded from the power grid of the United States. Yeah, was, you know. I mean, other states did. Uh, granted, other states did also have problems with the power grid. I, I actually heard about this because I listened to my brother, my brother, and me, um, which is like some 
comedy podcast or whatever, Three Brothers. One of them lives in Austin, and he posted some Instagram story of like the faucet, f- like like frozen like ice, like on, on like like an icicle coming out of the faucet. Another one lives in West Virginia, and they also didn't have power for like a week. Um, so yeah, Texas bad sucks, terrible government, shitty deregulation practices. But other states were also having issues with their electrical grids as well. Not trying to both sides this, by the way. Fuck Texas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was just it, it was uh, it was yeah, that, it's awful. I, I actually remember like uh, there was a boil order once in the town that I lived in growing up, and like I wasn't really sure like how that would happen. Um, and I heard, I actually heard that like, that, like the reason that bottled water like kind of exists as a thing is because there had been like deregulation of like, of like water utilities, I think throughout the country. And it's like, oh, you know, people can just buy bottled water instead. And so we're not going to spend as much money like on the, on the treatment plants. But I don't know if that's actually true or not. Don't even get me started about Flint. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's that's the word from Texas. All right, recording over. Y'all. <laughs>